Patches just chatted me and said, talk about Green Lantern. Yeah, he, me too. Okay. <laughs> oh, is Patches going to be on this week? No, I just wanted to say hi to him. Hey, Patches. <laughs> hey. Hi. <laughs> What's up? Are, wait, aren't you gonna re- are you recording your podcast or talk about uh talk about Green Lantern? What's what's the deal with all these Green Lantern books being canceled, and will they start new ones? And I'm excited. It's been too long since the New Fifty Two for you. No, I didn't. Been, uh, I missed long. the New Fifty Two. The New Fifty Two was I was reading Green Lantern comic books before then, like a lot of Green Lantern comic books, and then I tapered off. And the new 52 happened, and I just didn't get in on it from the ground up. And I decided I'm not going to read any of it, except some of the Batman. I read some of the Batman. I have an answer for you, because this is the thought bubble is in the business of instant answers. Are you ready? Yes, please. All right, so DC is doing a mini relaunch this June. So June 2015. Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps, a core are uh, amongst those. Those are like uh, the Forever People, Secret Origins, Red Lantern, Swamp Thing, Aquaman, The Others, Clarion, Trinity of Sin, Batwoman, World's Finest, Arkham Manor. They're canceled. They've, uh, they're all doing a mini relaunch in, in no, June. I, they actually announced that they'll all come back? Those are the the, the, council, the cancellations that were announced right, alongside, announced alongside the mini relaunch. Oh. So it sounds like a lot of Green Lantern books were canceled, but it sounds like this mini relaunch will involve a partial Green Lantern universe for you. I don't know if that includes, since the core book, it sounds like wasn't canceled. And I know that they have some big Sinestro issues coming out. I'm not sure if the whole reboot universe is going to be rebooted for you, but uh, Green Lantern avoided a hard reboot the first time around with a new 52. Right. It was one of the few books that did, so maybe maybe this is a jumping on point again. What if all the Yellow Lanterns are good and all the Green Lanterns are bad? I mean, that, uh, that, would, that would be interesting. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. <laughs> I like the sound of toast or whatever that's happening in the background. Oh, Michelle's making French onion soup. Yeah, it's all it's all good. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program, faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, impervious to bullets. Hello and welcome to The Thought Bubble, a podcast about comics and comics-adjacent culture. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're here to answer your questions about all things comics. Dave here is our so-called expert, and I'm your friendly neighborhood novice. But this podcast is meant for comics lovers of all levels. If Dave wants to go in-depth or spoilery about a particular answer, he'll do so in our advanced section that comes at the end of each episode with ample warning. So don't worry. If you have a question for us, please shoot us an email at bubbleyourthoughts at gmail.com. You can find all of our old episodes at fightinginthewarroom.com slash comics. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to issue number six of the Thought Bubble. It is Tuesday, December 16th, 2014, and we're going to kick off this week with a tweet from a guest host past, if that's not confusing enough for you. This one comes from Gail Folsom, who was on, I believe, issue number three. Uh, she tweets at Clockwork Rose, and she just sort of gave us a little heads up about an interview that Neil Gaiman gave to the Radio Times about the upcoming Sandman project. And... She said, hashtag Hiddle Death, try a hashtag Hiddle Dream. Um, and that's because Neil Gaiman said that he would like Tom Hiddleston to play Dream, uh, or he's one of the candidates. He, I think he then said, anyone with a believable British accent and cheekbones would do. Um, 
I am trepidatious about this adaptation, as most people who love the Sandman comic are. Uh, there's no way in hell they're going to get Tom Hiddleston because he's under lock and key at Marvel for several more films. And this is a DC property, but uh, still, it makes for a great uh, dream, I guess. Dave, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I'm sure there's some way they could get it done in this huge world of sharing properties once one of your properties seems to be in trouble. And, you know, maybe, I guess the upside in this is we don't know necessarily what version of a Sandman movie they're toying around with. My hope is they don't get ambitious and try to tell the greater story and instead focus on one of the tinier ones. Maybe the, you know, uh, the way they uh, that series introduces Dream as he's already been in captivity for a while. Something right. like that would be fun. And if you have someone like Tom Hiddleston on board, yeah, you might have to wait a little bit. But if you get a name like that, suddenly spinning it off into like a series of Sandman movies is something you could do on name alone, which is, I think, something they're going to need a star that has been able to prove they could do that. And I think Tom Hiddleston's got really close with Loki. So, yeah, if Marvel lets him go or has some sort of sharing deal or it's like at the, at the end of the day, by the time this movie comes along, Mar- the Marvel Universe is going to be so big. Maybe there won't be such a focus on Loki. And at that point, there's going to be so many actors who have already appeared as certain characters. And that's one of the downfalls of a unified universe is you're stuck with people until you get to that point in your series where you could switch out people without anybody noticing like James Bond. Uh, well, people notice when he's such a bond. Well, I mean, but... like without having a, to explain it in universe, I guess would be the reason. When you once you've made that decision to uh, recast yeah. like a Batman or a uh, James Bond midstream and just keep going that way, then I think you could, you know, precipitate that to other characters. But yeah, we haven't seen anything like that happen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe yet. So Tom Hiddleston's probably around at least through this phase. Yeah, I I feel like I've seen his name attached to a lot of the upcoming films, but maybe that was just wishful thinking. Um, all right, so then we're going to press pause on the listener feedback for a second to talk about ourselves. Uh, I just wanted to share the fact that I am reading the and loving uh, the Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh Captain Marvel series. It is so good. I am, I'm reading it because I really want to read Bitch Planet, which is her new, uh, book that just came out. Uh, but I thought I should read Captain Marvel since it's one of her, her more famous books first. Uh, and I'm loving it. I'm almost done with it. I also really loved her pretty deadly. So I, I'm pretty much in the tank for Kelly Sue at this point. Dave, what are you reading? Um, I guess in terms of current comics, I'm hooked into Marvel's, uh, Spider-Verse event. With all the different uh, Spider-Men crossing, and women, crossing over uh, to sort of defend themselves from this supernatural family that's been eating spiders interdimensionally. But most recently, they had their their Spider-Man team-up number two, which featured uh, Gwen Stacy Spider-Woman, the one in the white hoodie that everybody seems to love, and uh, her... Uh, with a version of Spider-Man that actually killed all of his villains and became the Green Goblin. It's sort of like a goblin spider. And then the other story in that book was Ultimate Spider-Man from the Disney television series, Ultimate Spider-Man Miles Morales from the comic books, and 1960s Spider-Man, the cartoon in the 1960s Spider-Man cartoon world. And that was pretty great. 
uh, from like little asides, like 1960s Spider-Man tells them they're overdoing the webs because they didn't draw all the webs on Spider-Man's costume because it was too costly for animation. Little, Little things like that really made it a pleasure. So Gwen Stacy at some point was Spider-Woman in one of the versions. She was, yeah, introduced uh, this year, but has become amazingly popular. There's even winks to her in Spider-Verse about how popular she is. That's how quickly they adapted the comics. But in an alternate universe, uh, basically it's reversed. So Peter Parker dies and Gwen Stacy feels responsible for not being able to save him. And it's a really interesting dynamic because her dad's still police captain. So she like is Spider-Man behind her dad's back. It's, it's a really ripe universe for exploring, uh, but immediately it was thrown into this crisis. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with her. I think they're going to give her her own spinoff book after all this Spider-Verse is over. That's interesting that they could have had a world where Emma Stone was Spider-Woman. Could have. I know you love the Gwen Stacy Die storyline. I know it's an iconic Spider-Man storyline. I know you're thrilled that they did it. Um, but I, you know, and we'll get to talking about Spider-Man in just a second, a little more, but, you know, that would have been interesting, right? Of all, of all the female characters played by actors to kick up into a leading role, Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy is one that I would have liked to see, I guess. Well, or at least to have more of a role. Her, story wasn't necessarily done says defender of the clone saga but no you know we're never going to go back there which might uh, lead us into our next question all right so this one comes from my buddy nate and shout out to him he's one of my favorite people to talk uh, about comics with he wrote in uh to say uh is the fact that the film rights kind of fracture the marvel universe for film so he's talking about the different studios and who has which property. Uh, we've talked about this before. 20th Century Fox, Sony, and Marvel are all have the rights to various characters. Um, and he says, well, it sucks that we can't see Wolverine and Captain America kick ass together. Doesn't the slightly narrowed scope potentially give us a better product? With the production time required for films and with Marvel's need to connect everything, wouldn't the current MCU just get ridiculously bogged down if it incorporated Spider-Man and the entire X-Men lineup of heroes and villains? Also, if it weren't for the separation of film rights, would we have ever gotten Guardians of the Galaxy, Ant-Man, Captain Marvel, or Black Panther, all excellent characters, but not quite as mainstream as Spider-Man or the X-Men? Um, I am going to kick this over to Dave to talk in depth about the way in which these universes are going to blend back together. But I just want to say really quickly that I love this question. I think it's really interesting. Um, and I think that's right. I don't know that we would have gotten a Star Lord movie if there were an option for Marvel Studios to make a, the upteenth Wolverine movie instead. So I think it does mean that Marvel gets to be a little bit more interesting than they might otherwise be. Dave? That's definitely true. If you take uh, the franchises and I, I guess split them into heroes or teams. And so like treating like, you know, Iron Man and Thor and Captain America as their separate franchises. And then the Avengers as the franchise. Um, Spider-Man and X-Men are by far the most profitable and neither of them are Marvel Studios properties. Spider-Man with five movies under his belt, even though everybody considers him a failure, has never not been like super profitable uh, overseas, internationally, in America. There there hasn't been like a failure Spider-Man movie like there was a Hulk movie. So uh, yeah, there would if Marvel did this sort of thing, we would still get the hyper 
popularization of the universe like i think we're bound to get anyway where all of a sudden you see these uh you know crossover movies rather than sequels so like iron man 3 was undoubtedly about tony stark captain america 3 is going to be about all these heroes coming together and having like this large battle i think you'd see that over pollinization either way but we would be chock full of mutants and uh spider-man characters at this point they would be very they would be i think they would be a dominant uh thing in like what we would consider the avengers off universe we'd be talking about like three a venn diagram of three circles um in terms of the sharing of it because that's how popular those two franchises that aren't at marvel are and that's why they're not at marvel it's because when marvel was going bankrupt and needed money they jettisoned uh everything to people who would buy it and the things the only things people wanted pre superhero age were these can't fail properties and yet somehow uh sony hasn't been able to make spider-man work and now there's a deal on the table reportedly this is this is the this is the part where everyone needs to pay attention if you haven't heard already yes sorry go ahead deal on the table according to me and latino-interview.com uh, between to share the character between uh, Sony and Marvel, the character of Spider-Man, it would be a 60-40 split with Marvel pro- providing most of the money, but Sony providing the distribution, and Marvel would have complete creative rights over um, the Spider-Man character. So they would be allowed to use him in universe in their phase films if they want to bring him in to uh i don't know a tag scene of the age of ultron or in the civil war like they originally planned if that's not too late it might be too late um but they would also produce a series of spider-man movies um i've heard the russo brothers who are expected to direct uh, infinity wars part one and two or they're at the top of the list right now in terms of people who uh think they're going to direct it uh, would be the people to uh, executive produce these other outside of the Marvel phase process uh, Spider-Man movies that would be part of the same universe. Uh, they would not focus so much on romance because the prevailing attitude is that Sony sort of focused too much on the romance for five movies. Um, and they, the, they took the CW approach. They did, which gets you a lot of people, but... Uh, they think that uh, the Spider-Man character is more interesting as sort of like a teenager stretched too far who has this, you know, shouldering this great responsibility. And not that there won't be romance, but it just won't be the the focus. It won't be as teened out necessarily in the ways that we've seen Spider-Man do it. So this is all a deal that could possibly happen. It probably won't happen until the new year. Um, but... Right now, it's sort of something that I've heard uh, Sony's and Sony Pictures Entertainment parent company in Japan, Sony Corporate or whatever the central Sony hub is called, is sort of pressuring Sony to continue investigating this because for them, it's easy money. It's hard for them to make a very profitable Spider-Man movie, as both the Amazing Spider-Mans have shown, and they would still profit a percentage off of this and be rolled into a thus far can't fail hit machine. Um, but it would be a major sort of, I guess, black eye to somebody like Gaby Pascal or Sony, who's traditionally been a defender of the creatives and the stars because they would boot all previous continuity. Uh, Andrew Garfield would be out. Emma Stone would be out. 
um, contracts would probably be bought out or dissolved somehow through weird legal means. And yeah, we just have a new Spider-Man. And it would so start... to sum up, sorry, it would not start with the origin. That's the only other thing. I'm just going to recap for me to make sure that I understand everything that you just said, which is that Sony has got a slightly weak property on their hand with Spider-Man, but Spider-Man has great potential. Marvel has an offer on the table to absorb Spider-Man into their uh, universe. Sony would still get a profit from it, but Marvel would have creative control. This would mean scrubbing uh, everything we already know about Spider-Man, be it Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire. Um, and Spider-Man would be involved in the, in the larger Avengers universe, but then eventually get his own offshoot. Um, that's not a web pun, uh, uh-huh. f- uh franchise. Is that right? That is, uh, that is correct. It's just, it, it seems from the perspective of Marvel and Sony corporate that the creative direction that has been taken by the new Amazing Spider-Man films show a lack of solid direction and, now with the hacks sort of also giving Sony a public black eye now, there's been a lot of pressure to uh, solve this situation because Marvel's running up against all these different dates that it has planned. And it's, if it wants to include Spider-Man in a way that's not going to feel tacked on, it would like to include it sooner rather than later. So it, I wonder. Yeah, I hope this sorry. goes down. It looks like it, it. it's very possible. I wonder if the Aunt May thing was like a nail in the coffin. I <laughs> actually, it, it was sort of the Aunt May and the female Spider-Man team up movie uh, because of it veering so far out of the uh, sort of hole they were digging themselves for Amazing Spider-Man 3. They actually had to pass that by Marvel and Marvel was like, n- no. I don't know why they had to pass it by Marvel, if it was something to do with the original contract where Marvel's seen all the Spider-Man stories first, or if they had to do it because they were reaching to characters like Silk that were introduced this year in a Marvel comic, but uh, Marvel was like, these are your ideas? Like, no. And that was part of, that was a little bit of the public distrust in uh, how this is um, shaken out. Uh, I was telling Dave when I was reading the Captain Marvel comic uh, earlier that Spider-Man shows up in the second issue or the first issue. Just briefly, um, Peter Parker shows up to sort of spark uh, with Carol uh, a bit. And it was, first of all, this is my first, technically first Spider-Man comic book I've ever read, which Dave had a real issue with. But, but also it was, it was weird to me. It was cognitive dissonance to me to see Spider-Man in this very, you know, in the same book with Steve Rogers like that. I was like, well, they're not allowed to interact. That doesn't make any sense. And so uh, uh, sp- that's where I am just because I don't have the background. Um, and, and so I'll be interested. And, and he was great. He, he, fit really well into that universe and so yeah spider-man and wolverine is one of my favorite pairings uh spider-man and tony stark we've sort of mentioned in other advanced sections have had a relationship uh but yeah i I like spider-man being around like other geniuses of the marvel universe just as much as i would like you know like rocket raccoon to talk to bruce banner in a movie like it's just interesting to see that part of peter parker and um, his morals are really uh, influenced uh, through these other characters. And it's interesting to see, I don't know, the movies sort of do that without it. these really cool supporting things. Spider-Man's a team player. There was a, like a few years back, Spider-Man was on like the Fantastic Four 
like two Avengers teams and was doing like his spider thing all at the same time. And he was just, he's everywhere. But we do have to acknowledge that like per the email that we just read that there is a point to be made that it's better or it's cool that we have characters like Hawkeye and Black Widow who might not have gotten screen time if a Spider-Man or whoever else was there to take that role. And so it's cool that we get to know these more niche characters a bit more um, as film goers who weren't brought up on comic books. Right? Yes. Although I wouldn't say it's necessarily that black and white. I would like to think that if we had access to all of these things, we would also, you know, we just get cooler. Like we know more people in the Spider-Man and the X-Men universe the way we know secondary characters in the Marvel universe now. There would be like a shocker TV show or, a you know, Foes of Spider-Man Netflix series. It would be... It would be just as deep. It would just be these other worlds that I'm sad or they feel like they're missing occasionally because Spider-Man and mutants are such big parts of this interconnected comics universe. All right. Uh, So our next question comes from uh, Craig from Kentucky. Uh, And he says, your conversation about adapting saga got me thinking about how much I wouldn't want that to happen. Don't get me wrong. The characters, the story, world, and long-form serial nature of saga would make it perfect for television or the not-TV of HBO. However, however, part of what makes saga so great is Fiona Staples' beautiful and distinct artwork. While I make exceptions, I love Sandman and Swamp Thing, despite how dodgy the artwork can get at times, the comics I love most are the ones that are strong visually as they are narratively. I'll even go so far as to say that artwork is more important to me than story. So are there any comics that you're so married to visually that you never want them to get the live action treatment? Also, what comic book adaptations do you have uh, that you think have done the best job or worst job if your axe needs grinding, translating the visuals of the page to the visuals of the screen? Dave, what do you think? Oh, um, my thing that I can't separate is also something that became a worst adaptation, which is Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, It's since expanded and lived on past the horrible Sean Connery movie um, and continues to be a a great series that's so tied to the way Alan Moore writes to the way Kevin O'Neill interprets it. And I don't know if it is for everybody, but it certainly is for me as somebody who reads these books as they come out and like has, has to find the Easter eggs like in the background. So it really makes a difference if I know what that illustrator's version of Sean Connery is going to look like, especially in something like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where that's James Bond, and I'm supposed to know he's James Bond because I'm supposed to recognize he looks like Sean Connery. So those sort of things is a interesting sort of plot and visual melding thing that if somebody else were to draw League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I'm not sure it would work, and I'm definitely sure that the way those books function a movie adaptation is probably not a good idea. But the thing I always like to bring up in terms of people, when people talk about like comics that shouldn't be adapted or such is that uh, Calvin and Hobbes should never be attempted to be adapted because it's this great example, I think of where everybody has read the motivations and the movement and the sounds of the characters' voices in their head since the beginning of their relationship to that strip, that there's absolutely no way to even like uh, please a majority of the people, which is why it's so great that Bill Watterson will never let it be done. Yeah, Bill Watterson's uh, feelings about adapting his own property is 
been a blessing to us all, I think. Um, however weirdly stringent, however much you might have wanted a Calvin and Hobbes sweatshirt growing up or whatever, I, I really do think it's been for the better. Or just that, that you never comic. you never had a Macaulay Culkin voiced, you know, cartoon Calvin and Hobbes short. And that's something to be really thankful for. Is no, yeah, it, that is. It well, would have yeah. locked in the voice for everybody, and it would have changed the or, strip, and it would have been ugh. Bill Murray as Garfield or something like that. Okay, well, well I'm okay um, with that because that's that's more interesting than I thought Garfield sounded in my head. <laughs> that's true. Um, I guess my answer. I have a smaller pool to draw from, and it's more recent. But I guess my answer would have to be. Um, Pretty deadly, which I already mentioned at the top of the show, but that's a that's a book that I think the artwork is actually even better for the than the writing. So I feel bad that I sort of put it all at the feet of Kelly C. DeConnick, but the artwork in that the the writing the world building is good. The writing is a little oblique, and it might even have to do with the way that the speech is written in the book. But the art is phenomenal. It's very beautiful, and I can't I can. I can see in my head that story, the story of death's daughter and a gunslinging sort of supernatural world, I think is really interesting, but I can't see them doing it stylistically doing it justice. So nice. That'd be my answer. I'm glad you picked a beauty one and I picked like a plot one that, that covers it. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll handle the, the super. It's like they'll aspect. never make this as beautiful. I'm like, they'll never make this make sense. <laughs> Uh, and you know this is this is a good follow-up question. This one's from Shannon, and he said, "What is your favorite reverse adaptation? Meaning a comic that is a continuation of a property that existed on TV or film first. Think Buffy, Angel, Firefly, Star Wars, two thousand and one, which led to Miracle Man, etc." Um, Dave, um, although uh, a lot of the ones that Shannon listed are ones that picked up after the narrative proper was done. Uh, my favorite one is the X-Files Tops comics, the initial run in the 90s that ran parallel with the second and third season of the series, I want to say. Uh, but it uh, built like this general side mythology that had its own shadow government and was interconnected to all these Monster of the Week issues and uh, whoever was writing it, who I should have looked that up and put it in my notes, I apologize to the two gentlemen that wrote the one through like 30 issue arc that I'm talking about. Uh, but, but they really got Mulder and Scully and they really got this other world and the art contributed in like this dark abstract way. And it really felt like it was X-Files, but also was its own thing. Uh, that includes the conspiracy and then also like the relationship stuff. So it was a great adaptation. And like they brought it back. There's now a new X-Files continued season to whatever that Chris Carter told them how to do. And I've also heard that it's really good. So I'm interested in maybe picking that up again and going back to X-Files. Oh, and I also want to bring up, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I also want to bring up that the Dark Horse Star Wars adaptations are great. Um, the, and I wanted to bring it up because starting next year, the Disney Star Wars complete takeover starts. Uh, Marvel's starting a Star Wars comic. So Dark Horse is pulling, they're stopping printing on all their Star Wars comics, and they're pulling them from their digital storefronts starting in January. So I really recommend you pick up some stuff, especially the graphic novel adaptations of some of the novels, the expanded universe novels, the Thrawn trilogy, which starts with Heir to the Empire, is 
actually better as a series of graphic novels than it is as a series of novels because you know sometimes there's some zon some get some long-winded zon asides about the star wars universe <laughs> where it's zon-winded yep, yeah. otherwise you could just sort of look at it on a page so if you want to seek those out seek those out now because they are going away um, my answer also has to do with Dark Horse. Um, the the question aimed at me, obviously, is about Buffy and Angel because I'm a huge Buffy and Angel fan. And I did read the Buffy comics and the Angel comics, not all of them, but some of them that came out after the show had stopped airing. And this is before I had really tried to get into comics. So this was me sort of doing some some light exploratory reading. But what I found is that I didn't like them nearly as much as I liked the Frey comics, which were like a spinoff of Buffy, mm. also written by Joss Whedon, and, and it ran concurrently with the seventh season. Um, and I, I don't know, there's something to me about seeing characters you like drawn like the actors who portrayed them but on the page it just it it didn't ever really work for me Mm. um the angel comic worked a little bit better for me but the buffy comic never really worked for me dawn was a giant i don't know it was all it was all very strange and and i had sort of fallen out, out of love with buffy a little bit by the end anyway but Frey being like a different Slayer in a different time, but the same universe, that worked much better for me. And I, I really, really liked that comic. So Yeah, the Buffy ones for me, the I read only the first season of the comics. And it was really interesting to see them sort of take a grasp on what they wanted it to be. Uh, very slowly so like I started off with like we're a comic we could do anything therefore we will do everything (laughs) and then they slowly had to like scale back the stories and I really appreciated where they landed but not enough to be like I it is essential that I know what happens to these characters in this universe going forward and so I, I fell off unfortunately yeah yeah uh, so I would recommend if you haven't check out the Frey comics, though probably most people have because I think they were pretty, pretty popular when they came out. If you were a fan of Buffy, but um, yeah, I, I could take or leave the the Buffy comics. Though you know they did do some interesting stuff exploring like sexuality and all this sort of stuff. But you know they made Dawn a giant. I think that was the real problem for me. They made Dawn my least favorite character, like this massive thing on the page, and that I couldn't even try to ignore. So uh, if they had killed Don off, they would have won me over forever. But um, well, that was like a Joss Whedon, Drew Goddard running up to Cabin in the Woods season. They sort of plotted that whole thing together. Yeah. Um. All right. So this, you know, speaking of Joss Whedon and the Whedons and Marvel, we're going to talk uh, about the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. finale right now. If you haven't seen it and have avoided spoilers, but are still somehow listening to this podcast, uh, go away because we're going to talk about what happened in the finale. But really, you should stay because it was a great or, or press pause, go watch the episode, then come back and listen to us talk about it. Uh, so this question is a sort of a more specific Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. question from Derek, um, but I'm just going to use it to spin off for us to talk about what we really also want to talk about. So his questions for Dave are, when did the writers know Ward is S.H.I.E.L.D.? Uh, when did they know that Sky is an inhuman? Or I guess they, he meant Ward is Hydra. Uh, when did they know Sky is an inhuman? And when did they know that Hydra is part of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Um, I'm going to jump in quickly and answer the Sky one, even though I know Dave knows the answers too, which is that... I just like to have 
the information sometimes too, <laughs> Dave. Um, <laughs> but um, the creators, the co-creators, Jed Whedon and Marissa Tashron, gave a gave an interview uh, where they said that this was their plan very nearly from the start. That they knew they wanted to make Sky something special, that they weren't sure which character they wanted yet. Um, and I think it took them a while to lock down the rights to make Sky into this Daisy Johnson character that she became. Um, I'm a little skeptical about that because they could be lying their ass off that this is their intention from the start, but that's their story. So that's, that's what we'll, we'll have to believe. I choose to believe this guy was a problematic character and they figured out a way to fix her. Um, Dave, your answers. Uh, I think they knew Ward was Hydra from the beginning. Um, a lot of this is piecing together different interviews and then looking at when those interviews were conducted or published and trying to figure out what the newest version of what they know is. Because it seems like, uh, you know, the showrunners are part of or plugged into the Marvel Cinematic Universe through Jeff Loeb, uh, who runs the TV side of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so they knew that Hydra was coming as this opposition to S.H.I.E.L.D. And it seems like they were allowed to develop the idea that it would be cool to have a double agent in their little spy group. So I think they knew Ward was Hydra from the beginning. They at least knew there was a double agent in their little group of people from the beginning. So that's more credit than I gave them for the first half of the season while it was airing. But apparently they deserve that credit. Uh, Sky's an inhuman. I'm with Joanna. I think they knew she was going to be something. I don't think they knew what I would peg until after Guardians became a hit and they realized that they could push harder into all this space stuff and not really have to stop to explain themselves. Um, so I think that's when the... That's, that's late. Yeah. I think like the inhuman... Well... Because weren't they already filming part of season one when Guardians came out? Part of season two? So, yeah, yeah, part of season two. Uh, I think they, like, just started, like, in July. Okay. But see, like, what did we really see of who Sky became? Like, her dad said her name. That's a, what, three seconds of footage that could be 80 yard over. And she did, like, a little bit of earthquaking. And, like, that's all we know. So whatever was in the obelisk, it didn't have to be alien craziness that led to a backstory race of alien craziness. It could have been, you know, something that was another more grounded Marvel hero. But like I said, I don't know. They claim that they knew Sky was going to be a hero from the beginning. Uh, I think that they the fact that she's an inhuman um is something that got tacked on because guardians of the galaxy did okay i would have liked to have seen uh what agents of shield would have done with colson's crazy man carving and uh, alien blood <laughs> if uh, guardians of the galaxy hadn't uh done well hadn't done well if they just would <laughs> have you know nosedived it in an arc and been like we're a spy show now we're all spies <laughs> So yeah, they'll like lean into the whole mockingbird like side of things yeah. more. And then Hydra being a part of Shield, uh, I think they probably knew that from from the beginning. Um, 
I, as soon as after I think it was, or I think it's something Kevin Feige wanted to do from the beginning. I think it was solidified as happening after the Avengers was a big hit, and they're like, "We made a billion dollars. We can do whatever we want." <laughs> and so, all the good guys are bad guys now. Yeah, because we said so. So they, yeah, yeah, they started they started reaching, and there's like little reaches like that. Like all the good guys are bad guys now, and their little reaches like here's a whole bunch of space characters you don't know anything about, and every time they reach, it emboldens them to reach a little bit more the next time. Until they so fall we, on their face. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so to recap the finale really quickly, in case you didn't watch it and are listening to this, uh, Sky, who's been kind of was kind of an annoying character for a lot of season one, became a lot more interesting. But it turns out that, in the words of one of the creators, this was a season and a half long origin story because she's not just a hacker with shiny hair. She's a hacker with shiny hair who's had her DNA tinkered with by aliens, and now she's had that tinker DNA activated, so now she can cause earthquakes. So she's actually named Daisy Johnson, a.k.a. Quake. And um, as Dave has mentioned in the past on this podcast, I mean, Dave's information that he's given us on this podcast was so helpful in me understanding this episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I know a lot of people who watched it who didn't understand what happened. So everyone basically should be listening to this podcast, is my point. Yes. But um, <laughs> because Dave is a huge wealth of knowledge. But yeah, so we've got it exact, it played out exactly as Dave said it would. She would go into a cavern, there would be these Terrigen mists, and that's how you pronounce it, right? Yes. And, um, and they would activate her stealth superpower, which was shaking things. And, uh, Reyna also has something going on with her, but we're not sure what it is yet. Um, she see, appeared to have like some quills coming out below her eyeball, but that's all we saw. Yep. So we'll have to see. And it's comic uh, books, so not all is lost for Dustman Trip. I believe all. Well, he's allegedly supposed to be in what Captain America three, I think. Or that actor's on something. Yeah, he's on. That actor's on a cast list coming up, so I don't know if he's like gonna play his grandpa or what i have no idea but anyway um well there's a lot of things that can be done with terrigen mists we just don't know what yet so all all i'm saying is that trip could come back well the actor had some sort of tweet like you know everybody's support has been great i wish i could say more (laughs) it's like great man it's sweet Mm. like it feels like if this is your exit from the marvel universe they would let you say something that's true okay um, so keep an eye out for Trip and what his, uh, reanimated dust might do. <laughs> um, and Sky, what was I going to say? Oh, th- and then as Dave has mentioned on the podcast before, this is Marvel's whole work around the, what we talked about at the top of this episode, which is that they can't have mutants in their world and that really hamstrings them. So they're making them inhumans instead. Um, and so they kept calling Sky gifted, Daisy Sky gifted, and we all know that that's Charles Xavier code for mutant. So, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot more. I think, <laughs> I think, is the theory of these Inhumans going forward as they take the place of of mutants uh, who are busy making money for 20th Century Fox. It's also a nice little wink because Gifted was the name of the Joss Whedon Astonishing X-Men run. And now his, nice. now his family's being like, mutant replacements, guys. Wink. Nice. Um, and the only other thing I'll say is that 
we, you know, for all our bitching, for all of my bitching, <laughs> we now have a Marvel superhero, female superhero on a major property. We apparently you know, had of... one from the beginning. Exactly. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. might be the B to, you know, the Avengers A, but like it's still a huge, huge show with a lot of money on ABC. And from the beginning, they've had a female superhero there. We just didn't know it. So here's here's the interesting I wonder thing. If they were laughing at is, okay, it's yeah, daisy sure. johnson who can eventually become the director of shield if you know the marvel cinematic universe follows in any way the comic universe which it hasn't up until now but that character is very close to being like the head of shield um at several times or is and um it's interesting that this character went from hacker to agent the first season and it's like they're building her into S.H.I.E.L.D. and they're building her into Daisy Johnson. It was an interesting choice and I feel like it could have been purposed. I'm just not sure. Like, I already suspended my disbelief that they looked at uh, What's-His-Place playing Ward and was like, he's going to be able to do a nuanced character. <laughs> I'm not No, they I'm gave sure him that beard. Looked... That's all he needed. The beard was working. I don't know why right. they shaved off the beard. The beard was working. And he's also done an okay job this season. I don't want to like undercut him just because he was horrible the first half of the first season. Uh, like doesn't mean that I he hasn't vastly improved his portrayal of Ward. But I don't know who looks at Chloe Bennett and is like, that's the one. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's going to be about Phil Coulson, but that's the one that's going to have to carry it on. It's going to be Sky. Uh, yeah, Chloe Bennett is an interesting choice, but I think she really has grown into that role. And I think it is interesting that two characters we thought were so confusing and problematic, like basically they were playing a long game. It's like you think uh, Agent Ward, square job, clean cut is boring as all paste. Well, that's because he's a, he's actually the villain. And you think Sky is really obnoxious little hacker girl. Well, secretly she's a superhero. So this is the long game Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is playing. Uh, apparently. Yeah, and it's a great sort of, I don't know, a series of reset buttons to have gigantic movies that everybody sees mess with you enough that you could be like, this is this is what we always meant. This better version was always the sculpture <laughs> hidden in our block of marble. It's like, oh, I don't know. I said block <laughs> well, of marble, I, by the way. I want credit for that pun. It's really Thank good. <laughs> um, I... You know, I I definitely think that Samuel Jackson is not going to be in these movies forever, but I would be very surprised if Chloe Bennett ended up being the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. in um, the movies. Chloe Bennett, I don't know. Well, But I'm really excited to see her as the lead on a TV show. I think she's up for that. I think she's up to be our new Buffy, but I don't think she's up, you know, to be... Uh, a major player in the movies. Yeah, new Buffy is exactly what it is. And if new yeah. Buffy takes off, if season three, new Buffy takes off, um, then the shield totally end up in the movies, but she'll be like, but she'll be the, she'll be the new Maria, Maria Hill. Hill. Yeah. 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 I can see her doing like a Maria Hill level. I just can't see her doing, well, I guess, I guess Maria Hill has, We'll just, we'll just big part. take 10 years and make Colby Smulders and Chloe Bennett of equal star power. Just like <laughs> depressurize one and repressurize the other <laughs> till they're equal. And then they'll just they'll have a show called Ladies of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> I'd watch that. Um, 
Yeah, and, and new Buffy is exactly what I hope it is. And if that makes Phil Coulson Giles, then I think we can all agree that this is great. Great. Yeah, he's Wonderful. a better Giles than Giles was already. Whoa, wait. Whoa. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, hold and on. They share air- alien blood. And he's not going to be like, I need to go to Britain. Actually, you know what? In, yeah, he's not in the, He's not going to bugger off to England, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say that because that's what Phil Coulson in Secret Avengers in the comics is doing right now. So maybe he will do just that eventually. Bugger off to... Uh, he's like, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go... Yeah, no no good. Uh, okay, and before we move off Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we've got some um, deeply nerdy questions for Dave only, not for my eyes, uh, about the Korean and humans. Uh... And this is this comes from Pat, and he says, "With Agents of Shield totally embracing the Cree connected in humans, I have some inhuman questions that I hope Dave can answer." The show has apparently established that humans who were descended from the Cree tampered population have the ability to survive exposure to Terrigen mist. It looks like regular humans cannot survive it at all. I was bummed that Trip wasn't carrying a latent inhuman X factor. And- Obviously, Dave already addressed that. But I want to say that in the comics, there have been humans who have stolen Terrigen crystals and used them to grant themselves powers. My question is this. How will the movies explain Lockjaw, the inhuman bulldog? I always thought Lockjaw was a pet of Black Bolts that accidentally was exposed to Terrigen mist. I doubt that the Kree had experimented on wolves in the Stone Age, leading to a bulldog with the right genetic makeup to respond to the mist. I might be misremembering Lockjaw's origin, but I'm interested in hearing what Marvelous Dave has to say. Uh, and he had one other question, which is, are the tuning forks attached to Blackpool's forehead and Lockjaw's head a result of the Terrigen process, or were they surgically added for some reason? I've always wondered. Black bolts um, might not even be actual implant for all I know, but Lockjaw's looks permanent. Um, yeah, this is your deeply nerdy question of the week. I don't even know half of what Pat is talking <laughs> about, but I will turn it over to Dave. Dave. You said you were reading Captain Marvel. Oh, no, you're reading the old Captain Marvel. You're not reading Miss Marvel. Never mind. I got all confused. I thought there, you should definitely know who Lockjaw is, though. So we'll educate everybody. All right. So the Terrigen myths. In the comics, they are produced from the Terrigen crystals. They are something that uh, they learned. The Kree scientists who experimented on and created the Inhumans learned, reacted with uh, Kree DNA and mutated them into like crazy monsters so the way not to become crazy monsters because some of these crazy monsters just were humans that had powers is to be very very careful about your genetic engineering and uh your uh nazism uh, for lack of a better word about who gets exposed to these terrigen mists so you want these pure blood in humans exposed to the terrigen mists they're going to get powers they're not going to end up being weird uh i think they're called alpha humans or alpha mutates which is what happens when terrigen mist goes bad it makes you like a subhuman um so when we get to the Inhumans, the movies, it's going to be big on these Terrigen Mists. How Terrigen Mists affect offspring of Inhumans is how we saw affect Sky, where she was cocooned. And that's sort of been made popularized recently in the Terragenesis that happened recently in the Marvel Universe as part of the Infinity storyline, where a bomb of mists was set off over the Earth, essentially, and these sort of latent Inhumans came about. So the reason I gave that really complex explanation is 
there's this theory that's my favorite Lockjaw theory, that Lockjaw is just an inhuman, and that's what the Terrigen Mists did to him. He's definitely one of the more powerful characters in the Marvel Universe. He could teleports. He looks like a bulldog. He's super smart. He's fought like the Thing and the Hulk, who are the strongest people in the Marvel Universe, as, as far as we know, and sort of held his own ground. Um there was a time period where uh, the thing thought Lockjaw could speak and he suggested that he might have been a normal human uh, that or not normal inhuman turned into sort of like this dog thing, much like Ben Grimm. The thing was transformed into a monster through his thing as like a way to bond with the thing. That was sort of revealed to be a joke or not. There's a long debate on it I found on this website online about the crux where if Lockjaw talks, then Lockjaw was a normal inhuman that became a dog. So that Lockjaw's origins haven't really been solidified. I don't think it's a dog. I think it was a result of a, a terrogenesis uh, mutation. <clears throat> Other Terrigen Mist uses in the Marvel Universe canon. Uh, when mutants are depowered, uh, the Terrigen Mist can give them their powers back, but they have new uncontrollable side effects and it's temporary. And for a brief period of time, somebody stole some Terrigen crystals and gave them to humans. And if the human was like focused enough on their goal, they would be able to briefly have powers, but it was fatal in all instances. So uh, basically, let's pretend it basically kills humans a la trip unless we know otherwise and then finally the tuning forks black bolts are on its costume and lock jaws be permanent Whew, yeah that was awesome i think that was all of it <laughs> that was great um all right so that is our agents of shield sort of response uh we might get into next week who that guy with no eyes is but um i've read a bit about it but i don't want to go into it right now because we have two other mid-season finales that we need to talk about real quick Big season um it's a big, big week, man. Um, so the first question is, uh, I'm so sorry, I'm going to butcher this name, but I think it's Saquon. And uh, he says, what are the differences in powers between Barry Allen and the reverse flash, if any? And who is this Professor Zoom guy that seems to be related to this equation? So let me, I'm going <laughs> to, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fumble through my understanding of the flash finale. And then Dave can come in with a, probably a better answer. I mean, I think yours, <laughs> your answer is going to be the because if, if we're talking about the mid-season finale, they're going to be able to make their own little rules. So to just like I guess answer the brief question, I should just say it is that Professor Zoom was one of many people who have been called Reverse Flash over the years. There's a lot of other speedsters, uh, but in terms of how it relates to this, I think uh, none of them were anybody that we saw on the tv series can we talk about that that we're we're yeah. spoiler okay because it's aired on tv yeah yeah none of them yeah. were dr wells so i guess that means we're off comic book joanna how do you know none of them were dr wells what is it in the comics no i mean well oh no 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 but i mean on the show who who do you think the man in the yellow suit is oh i mean i think it's either i think it's a time uh, time jumping yeah. wells i think it's a river yeah. song wells i think is what we're dealing with i completely agree well that's the theory that i read that made the most sense to me is that the guy who killed barry allen's mom and the guy who fought dr wells you know because like dr wells got beat up by this guy in the yellow suit how can that happen it's because it's a younger version of him um i believe is is what we're supposed to understand 
Or that's that wasn't really that evident in the show, so maybe that that is, and it's all theory anyway. But the theory is that Doctor Wells is also the man in the yellow suit. But as for why he killed Barry's mom, is it ultimately because he feels like the Flash belongs in the world, and this is how you make a Flash? Or, or I don't know. That's where it gets a bit confusing for me because it seems like he's supposed to be a bad guy with weirdly altruistic motives. Does that make sense? Or am I completely off base? No, no. I mean, it it depends how much you're buying the character of Dr. Wells being a good guy at all just from the start. But, because isn't he the guy that rolls into the crisis room at the end of the pilot? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you uh, think about DC's crises have occasionally been based along whether or not the Flash lives or dies. So let's assume that he could still be altruistic and need to create the Flash for some reason. So like right. at some point down the line, the future of all the universes, all the interconnected universe requires Flash to die at a specific time, which requires Flash exists, which requires this uh, relationship, which requires somebody dying. I've also heard that in this sort of epic battle, that's going to be a time jumping battle that brings Barry back. Uh, it's Barry's fate ultimately to kill his mother in pursuit of the man mm. in the yellow suit. Um, that makes sense because yeah the revelation in this mid-season finale is that there's someone in a red suit in the room with the guy in the yellow suit who killed barry's mom and so if that was barry himself in a time traveling plot line at his mother's own death and if he's the one who ends up killing her what an origin story right then we're how's that yeah <laughs> so i guess if i like that. anybody wants to uh, let's see no, 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 no. Let's, let's, yeah. If you, if you want to scratch your flash itch, maybe pick up the Flashpoint uh, or Flashpoint Paradox trade paperbacks from DC and sort of get where I might be getting some of this from. All right. Um, and so then the last mid-season finale that we need to talk about uh, is Arrow. And uh, we don't have a question related to this. This is just me wanting to talk about it. Uh, once again, spoiler warning. Uh, sorry, this has been a bit of a messy episode for spoiler warnings because we don't technically have an advanced section. But um, we are talking about a lot of TV shows that have aired, but not everyone gets to everything right away. But this has to do with the Flash finale or the Arrow finale, which uh, saw the death of Oliver Queen, allegedly. Um, I don't believe that, of course. Uh, most people don't, but um, well, that's not the question see- to ask in a comic book series. It's not oh, when okay. he's going to come Hold back. On. It's how long is he going to be dead? Okay, okay. He he had a sword through his chest. He like first he got like a major sword wound in the side, then he got a sword through the chest, then he got kicked off a really high cliff. Mm-hmm. So it's not when is he coming back. It's how, what is existent in the Arrow universe that could bring someone back from a sword through their heart and getting kicked off a cliff? Whatever kept Raza Gould looking like that since it's been 60-some years since someone challenged him shirtless, which is the Lazarus Pit for those of us who read the comics, but at least what they set up in context in this episode is there is a Lazarus Pit equivalent. We don't know how they're going to deal with it yet. The showrunner said some things that I don't think is going to be a one-to-one crazy mystical translation, which is good because that would break Arrow's universe, but I think they're... 
the, together with uh, that guy from his past being uh, part of the League of Assassins now, I think that's our most likely character to retrieve the body of Oliver and rehab him through some sort of hacky Lazarus pit. But I'm more interested No, in... that's like the resurrection pools in Lost. Uh, is that what the Lazarus pit is? Yeah, I mean, the Lazarus Pit is what everybody thought was going to bring Bruce Wayne back after he got his back broken rather than just spending a whole bunch of time in a pit in The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, When people saw production photos of that pit, uh, they thought it was an actual literal Lazarus Pit that he would go into. But the whole Ra's al Ghul character being immortal, it looks like, unless they're going to go the DC uh, Christopher Nolan route where it's more of a name that's passed down, they're actually going to do some guy that could reverse aging or super heal damage. And it's going to, I don't know. It's a comic book universe. I, I watched Oliver come back from a whole bunch of weird stuff that should have technically killed him. I mean, that's fine. Buffy came back. So I guess Oliver can come back, but, um, well, they killed him like they yeah. killed Batman too. This one time they killed Batman right. and brought him back with the Lazarus pit, which goes back to my Batmaning of arrow. But yeah, Dave, <laughs> Dave, brought up some comic cells that make it very clear what the inspiration for this particular sequence is. Um, but yeah, well, the, yeah. So I guess you're, you're right. The good question is when, how long will Stephen Amell be gone and from the show? How long will this be a Brandon Ruth show? Ah, <gasps> uh, that's exciting. <laughs> I love Stephen Amell, but I would watch the Brandon Ruth show. There so. have been some, uh, casting rumors about, uh, people that would technically have to exist in flashbacks that have made some wonder if maybe we're just going to abandon Oliver Queen even in flashback mode and now it's suddenly it's time to learn the origin story of Atom before which is an acronym in this universe uh, not a shrinking power apparently but right. yeah. someone needs to step in uh, while Oliver's out and it looks like yeah, it's going to be is- Superman Steve, <laughs> TV TV level Superman. Um, Stephen Amell did was pretty adorable messing with with fans on Twitter about like him being gone. But but I I think he did say something like the Arrow is more than a one person. It's a concept or something like that. So um, you know I well you know it'll be interesting because I think what it does is it creates a vacuum for not just Brandon Ruth's character to step in but also. You know, we know Canary's coming up, uh, or Black Canary, I guess. And we know, I think, um, uh, that kid that I don't like is supposed to get more screen time, which is the bad news. But anyway, I think, I think you'll see what we saw off season in Buffy, which is that when Buffy died, the Scooby gang stepped up to take the place. And so we're going to see some Scoobying happening with, um, Brandon Ruth uh, playing a featured role, which is great because he's fantastic in general, fantastic on the show. And if they're setting up for him to have a spinoff, I wouldn't mind. If he's kissing Felicity, he's our next hero. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to say a good, yeah. good move, though, yeah. for uh, the show to be like, uh, when you look at the, um, if, if you had to be the showrunner of Arrow at the beginning of this season and be like, what do we do in case the Flash isn't a big hit? It'd be like, oh, we'll just kill the main character in the mid-season. And that way, like, even if Flash face plants, it's like we won't really have that much bag. Other, we'll have other things to worry about. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
So that's those are all of our comic book, uh, comic series midseason finales. I mean, I'm not talking about Constantine, but Gail Folsman did text me this morning to tell me that they on Constantine, which you know has already been canceled. Basically, they they started setting up the whole Swamp Thing plotline. So that's a place they could have gone if they had been given the opportunity. I suppose. Oh, Swamp Tees. Uh, swamp Tees. <laughs> Is there anything else uh, we want to talk about that happened this week, news-wise? Uh, we, I, <laughs> I, I have, I think it's down to three people to play the Ancient One and Doctor Strange. Uh, Ken Watanabe, Morgan Ken, Freeman, yeah. and uh, who was the third one? The one I didn't like it's- as much. I guess I'm looking that up now. I'm looking that up now. Looking it up. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that post earlier. I just don't, I don't have any much contents for the um, ancient one. So I didn't know whether to be excited or not. Well, last time we ended this podcast yes. being like, wouldn't it be cool if it was Al Pacino? Yeah. Right. But that wasn't it. Bill Nye. Bill Nye, Morgan Freeman, Ken Watanabe for the ancient one. I personally am rooting for Ken Watanabe because I think that there are, yeah. I I want him back in the comic book universe after the the Watanabe tease that was the Dark Knight. So yes, and the fact that he made it through Godzilla with his dignity, even though that character was just there to be like the Japanese are okay with all of this, even though they made him say Gojira. Which... Let them fight. Okay. Uh... <laughs> um. All right. Anything else we want to talk about? No, I think that's good. All right, so that's about it for us this week. Uh, you can find all of our episodes, Fighting in the War Room slash, what is it, comics? Yes. <laughs> Fighting in the War Room slash comics is where you'll find all of our old episodes. Um, we have been doing pretty well on the iTunes chart, and I can only imagine that's thanks to you guys. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Please do uh, leave a review if you're so inclined. That helps us uh, get out there a bit more, helps people see our podcast. Uh, you can send us emails with your questions, comments, or concerns, what you're reading, what you think we should be reading, bubbleyourthoughts at gmail.com. Dave, where can the people find your work on the uh, internet this week? Latino-review.com to talk about more Spider-Man and comic book news things. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DA70, and I'll let you know if there's anything else that you should be paying attention to. Lots of comic book stuff happening. Man, there's some Lego stuff today. Man, the possibilities. (laughs) Oh, right, because they're doing Lego Batman, right? Oh, I mean, they released the Avengers Age of Ultron Lego sets, and there's some stuff in the Lego set Mm. that I'm like, that's in that scene? Or is Lego just lying to us? Oh, so fun. Should we advance, should we advance section that really quickly? Uh, I don't think so. Let's see how it plays out. Lego okay. also released an right. Iron Man versus the Mandarin final fight that involved like a vehicle. So Lego could also just be needing Messing with things. you. Yes. Um, all right. <laughs> you can find my work on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Once again, I do want to thank Dave for everything he's taught me uh, really has made me a better comic book watcher and reader and all that sort of thing. So I am personally grateful to this podcast. So please send your accolades to Dave for all of his information. Aww. And we will see you next week. Aww, bye. <laughs>